Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Welcome to Episode 7 of my Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Podcast Series, your Diversity and Inclusion Toolkit. My name is Elisha Asgar-Dotson, and I am a Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Trainer, Consultant, and a Shareholder with Littler Mendelssohn, which is, of course, the largest management side labor and employment law practice in the world. As you might have realized by now, my podcasts are inspired by what is top of mind for me as I navigate my clients through another and ever-changing month in the DE&I space. During this last month, I spent a significant amount of time thinking about affinity groups. These organizations are more recently being titled employee resource groups or business resource groups to underscore that the group is not exclusive, but rather an inclusive organization within the company. And so it is that you, my friends in the internet space, get to hear about the interesting confluence of affinity groups and the National Labor Relations Act this month. My sincere thanks to Littler Seattle's amazing office managing shareholder, Ryan Hammond, who spends a great deal more time in the traditional labor space than I do. Ryan kindly reviewed and greenlighted my content for this podcast to ensure that I am not leading you astray as I wax poetic about all things in LRA. I should start by saying I think a well-structured and implemented affinity group can be a very effective tool for employers. Not only can affinity groups improve employee morale and boost retention, they can also serve as an excellent tool to attract diverse talent to an employer. For example, a diverse candidate might see an active affinity group as an example of the inclusivity in action within an employer's ranks and the promise they too can succeed within that company. A prospective employee might also see a healthy and active affinity group as an assurance they shan't be alone within the company. An affinity group that is well-supported by the company demonstrates in a very tangible way that the company is thinking about its DE&I plan and putting their money where their mouth is. But therein lies the rub. Affinity groups that are company supported, and it is a recommended practice that the company be involved in the germination and implementation of an affinity group, cannot simultaneously serve as an advocacy group that negotiates for workers' rights with the employer. To do so, considering the company's support they receive could make them a company union and violate the NLRA. Importantly, the NLRA controls employee concerted activity, whether a union is present or not. So in this podcast, I want to bend the ear of all employers and not just those with a unionized workforce. Wait, what? You might wonder. 
Shouldn't an effective affinity group be sharing ideas for improvement within the company? Should it not serve as a conduit to allow the company to understand how it can evolve to a better supportive environment for its diverse employees? Isn't it a recommended practice to open these affinity groups to all workers, including managers? Absolutely. But generating suggestions that an employer can parse through and implement or not implement at its own discretion is a far cry from negotiating or bargaining. When an affinity group traverses into the territory of bargaining, troubles can brew under Section 8A2 of the NLRA. So, for example, an affinity group that goes back and forth with management regarding their suggestion for employment vacation time or a new form of personnel evaluations could be a company union. To understand the theory behind the NLRA's prohibition, it is perhaps helpful for us to take a walk down history lane. The National Labor Relations Act came into being in 1935 and is a foundational statute of U.S. labor law that guarantees the right of private sector employees to organize into trade unions bargain, and to engage in concerted protected activities such as strikes. However, the nature of these trade unions was controversial at the time of the statute's genesis. When Congress debated Section 8A2 of the NLRA in 1934 and 1935, it settled on an independent union or bust theory. The NLRA provides an either-or dichotomy to employees. Unionize under an independent union or choose no union at all. Employees may not choose a less adversarial, less independent, and less powerful form of employee representation in partnership with an employer. This prohibition stems from unsavory practices by employers in the late 19th and early 20th century, who regularly established company-controlled employee organizations to forestall the formation of independent unions. Spurred by public sentiment against such practices, Congress banned those so-called company unions or sweetheart unions when it passed the NLRA. Thus, Section 8A2 of the NLRA makes it an unfair labor practice for an employer to dominate or interfere with the formation or administration of any labor organization or contribute financial or other support to it. Section 2.5 defines a labor organization in a sweeping and broad manner as any organization of any kind in which employees participate and which exists for the purpose in whole or in part of dealing with employees concerning grievances or conditions of work. To come full circle, we must analyze whether affinity groups can be swept into the broad definition of a labor organization, and they can. This is because employers invariably control affinity group formation and administration, 
even where workers have requested the creation of an affinity group, it's a recommended practice for the employer to participate in structuring the organization and giving it official recognition. Employers often also provide material support to affinity groups in an executive sponsor, a place to host their meetings, supplying snacks or meals for meetings, funding and time off from work to attend affinity group events. The crux of deciding whether an employer is stepping on NLRA toes is therefore whether the affinity group deals with employers, so it is sufficient to qualify as a labor organization. To reach this threshold, an employer must bargain with or enter a bilateral exchange of proposals coupled with real or apparent consideration from management. This exchange must also create a pattern that spans over time. Affinity groups that operate solely as social or networking agencies and that provide suggestions for the company to consider improving do not rise to this threshold and are likely not violating the NLRA. However, should affinity groups make demands as advocates for workers' rights, it may raise questions under the NLRA. Although modern employers who create or support affinity groups are likely not trying to create a company-sponsored labor organization, NLRA does not look to motive. Rather, Section 8A2 prohibits any group that meanders into its broad definition of a labor organization with a single-minded focus on stopping any practice that could inhibit union creation. If you are an in-house attorney or a diversity officer of a company, now might be right about the time you are wondering just how much sleep you ought to lose on this esoteric topic. And that's a great question because times, they are changing. Perhaps because affinity groups were historically a thing of white-collar employment, they have been largely left unchecked by traditional unions and the National Labor Relations Board. However, there has been a massive proliferation of affinity groups into all aspects of American corporate life in the past year. Manufacturers and retail industry employers, from grocery chains to automotive manufacturers, launched affinity groups as an aspect of their diversity, equity, and inclusion programming, which brings affinity groups into more traditional union territory. Because union density in the private sector has waned in recent years, it is not unlikely that affinity groups' interactions with employers that encroach on a union's traditional market segment might come under scrutiny soon. If that were to happen, I want employers to be prepared. In-house counsel and diversity officers need to know where the lines are drawn regarding an employer's interactions with an affinity group. In other words, I want employers to have been implementing and interacting with their affinity groups from day one in a manner that does not cause them any concern if they should ever find themselves under that microscope. 
So, I encourage affinity groups to discuss topics of note to their members and brainstorm ideas, but they should stop short of engaging in bilateral negotiations. In that vein, I'd like to leave you with three do's and three don'ts when developing an effective relationship between employers and their affinity groups. One, do seek input from sources other than the affinity group. Not all the members of your organization are members of the affinity group. Two, do answer questions from employees on policies and procedures, including questions about unions. Three, do refer to the union and defer those issues that are proper subjects for bargaining to the union if the facility is unionized. Now for the don'ts. One, do not have workers vote for representatives to their affinity groups. Two, do not allow or encourage affinity groups to represent the workers in your workforce. Three, do not allow affinity groups or workers to engage in back-and-forth exchanges or negotiations with management in the group. Well, we have spent another fun episode tackling how you can foster diversity amongst your workforce in a legally compliant manner. If you have any more questions about these issues or anything else in the DE&I space, please shoot me an email or give me a phone call. We will continue to unbox and demystify other DE&I concepts in future podcasts, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.